Welcome to Tomo Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open God's Word with you as we begin our fall teaching series that we've entitled Upstream. At Tumble Bible Church, our goal is to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. And one of our targets for this series is to help equip you for the world we live in. We live in a world that's been changing in really drastic ways quite rapidly. And as the church, we need to be equipped to navigate the waters of the world that we live in. Now, some people really from the outside have asked why we would do this. Why talk about what it means to go against the grain of our culture in a place where 70% of people would check the box on a survey that they are Christians. So the demographic results of America say that, that almost everyone in America is a Christian. But when you dig a little deeper, you find that that story isn't exactly accurate. In his book, Follow Me, David Platt does an assessment of these statistics where you begin to overlay a number of studies and go deep. And I give you an example that kind of shows you what we're dealing with. Is while 70% of Americans would say they are Christians, around 25% would say they believe Jesus to be the divine and only Son of God. So 70% would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but only 25% would affirm the most basic statement of the Christian faith. So we can begin to kind of think that the numbers don't exactly line up. That when we dig deeper into not just what people say they are, but what they believe, the number in terms of percentage in America begins to go down with around 10% of Americans affirming Orthodox historic Christianity. And that makes sense of the things we see in our culture, drastic changes and turns away from the truth that is proclaimed in the scripture. And so what we want to do in these next few weeks is to begin to look at some key areas where our culture is confused and where these rapid changes are going directly contrary to the truth of the word of God. Not only provide biblical clarity, but hopefully help equip each of us to navigate the world that we find ourselves in. Not only in terms of knowing what's right and what's true, but in terms of moving forward as people who proclaim the truth. And what we want to do today is kind of begin answering the question, how did we get here? There's an interesting interchange in the Gospel of John between Jesus and a man named Pilate. Jesus had been arrested and he's being shuttled back and forth between the governor and the king and different people being asked to make an account for himself. He's run through some mock trials. He lands with Pilate, the Roman governor. And I want you to hear in John chapter 18, the interchange between them, because I think in this, we're going to find the key question that our culture is struggling with and hopefully be able to move from there. In verse 17 of John 18, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? I believe that that question and how we answer it is the key question facing us as the church. And because our culture has answered that question wrongly is the root source of the confusion that we see in front of us today. And so what I'd like to do to take a moment is to walk you through a history lesson. I'd like your permission to kind of geek out on philosophy for just a few minutes and hopefully 
make it somewhat engaging. And so it begins with this. There's a field of study in philosophy called epistemology, and that's free. You can take that word home and impress your friends if you're not a nerd like me. Epistemology is the study of knowing. I think that's an interesting field. We study how we know. But it involves the study of sources of knowledge, where we look to understand truth, and how we order and prioritize them. And what I'd like to do in a few minutes is give you the smash-and-grab version of epistemology in the Western Hemisphere. So this is going to be fun. I know you guys all were jazzed about this. Uh, I want to introduce you to one of the first sources of knowledge. It looks like a stool, but actually this is our friend, tradition. Tradition is very, very helpful in terms of our understanding of what is true. We learn things by tradition. Sometimes it's small things like uh, the recipe of how we cook pot roast in our family. Other times it's bigger things related to our character and nature and who we are as a family, attributes that we pass on from generation to generation. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's questionable. I'll give you an example. Many of y'all were raised to believe that Texas A&M was the greatest university in America. That may or may not be accurate, um, but that's definitely a tradition. Our next friend is decidedly more helpful. His name is Revelation. Revelation is the belief that God at some point had spoken, and that because God had spoken, those words had authority and should be obeyed and heeded. Now, this is more than just a bumper sticker that says, God said it, that settles it. This is the understanding that God spoke. Now, People who would say revelation should be on the table don't believe that that's the only thing. While, while God spoke to us, there's some things God hasn't said. Let me give you an example. If you have two job offers in front of you, there's no Bible verse to turn to to tell you which one to take. Except if it's a decision between something that is honorable and something that's dishonorable. But most of us don't have those kind of job choices. I don't think many of you have had the moment where you've had to choose between being a doctor or a drug dealer. Now, if given those choices, the Bible does give a directive, but in most jobs, should I work in sales at this company or that company, there's no Bible verse to tell you what to do. That doesn't mean that God's revelation isn't reliable or trustworthy. It just means that it's not exhaustive. There are things that it doesn't say, but it gives us the information to help us make all the decisions we need to make, but it doesn't give us chapter and verse about every life decision. It doesn't mean it's not useful or important just means don't go digging in your Bible verse looking in your Bible looking for verses about which house you should buy. Uh, there's some guidance, but not an exact, you know, not, not going to find the address there. The third source of knowledge that we have is reason. Our ability to observe the world around us, to analyze that, synthesize that into theories that help us make good decisions. Sometimes it's really helpful, sometimes it's not. One great example from history of the use of reason is that for years and years and years, people believed that tomatoes were poisonous and you should not eat them. The only reason they believed that, though, is because most of the people in Europe had plates made of pewter and for some strange reason, the acid in the tomato interacted with the metal and people got sick when they ate tomatoes off of a pewter plate. So don't eat tomatoes off of pewter plates. Otherwise, enjoy tomatoes. But that's how reason works. Right? We observe things, we draw conclusions, we make theories. So, so these are our sources of knowing. We have tradition, things that were handed down to us. We have revelation, a word from God. And we have reason, our ability to look at our world, synthesize data, and draw conclusions. And so this is what we do. Now, I want you to see that throughout our history in the Western culture, these 
stools have been in different positions reflecting different orders of priority. So in a traditional world, prior to the Protestant Reformation, we had two stools in the front, and their names were Tradition and Revelation. And truthfully, they sat right next to one another. Behind them was our friend Reason, and he was useful, but he was definitely in the second tier. And this is how things operated. We had the Word of God, and equally authoritative in the minds of most people was the historical way that the church had understood the Word of God. The problem with this system is that the average person couldn't read the Bible because he didn't own a copy, and it was only in Latin, and nobody speaks Latin. So, what do we do? In this system, things begin to get a little wonky because the only guy who knows the Word of God is a guy who has the authority and is responsible to upholding tradition. And so the Catholic Church began to shuffle things a little bit to where tradition almost stood over the Word of God. Now, people started to look at this and said, this is a problem because these traditions are being used to oppress people and to extort money from them so that people have power. So, give you an example of how this might work. Uh, you didn't follow all the sacraments of the church, and yet you would really like to go to heaven. So, you had a, a cousin who was a faithful member of the church. They could do something. They could cut a significant check to the church. It's called a papal indulgence, and they could buy your way into heaven. Now, people begin to look at that and say, that doesn't seem right. This is a bit of a scam. And the reason they felt that way is because it was. And so, the Protestant Reformation kicks off in the 1500s. Guys named John Calvin and Martin Luther. And here's what they do. They say, you know, uh, it seems that when we read the Bible, salvation is found in Christ alone. But the message we've been getting is salvation is found in the church alone. And I think these traditions are being used to rip us off. So here's what we're going to do. We're taking tradition off the stage. We're going to begin with the Word of God, and we're going to study the Word of God. And we have tradition, we have the Word of God, revelation, and we have reason. We have our ability to understand the Word of God, square behind it, and we're going to study the Bible, we're going to come up with conclusions. And, and this era, the 1500s and 1600s, were explosive in terms of people studying their Bibles, applying principles of reason to the study of Scripture, and writing ridiculously long and helpful systematic theology books. They're good books. We should read books by dead people. They're usually better than the ones living people write. And so this is what we had. Now things begin to shift and something called the Enlightenment happened. And the Enlightenment took place in Europe as the church's authority began to diminish. Other things started to move into its place. The Enlightenment was built upon the understanding that reason is how we made sense of things. I think, therefore, I am. That's the cry of the Enlightenment. So what the Enlightenment did is take the stools and switch them. And now reason was in the front. We still had revelation. We still needed God to speak to us. But more than that, we needed to be able to understand things. And you get things from the Enlightenment like the Thomas Jefferson Bible, which is a great example of the era. Jefferson believed that God had spoken, but anything that didn't make sense in his rational understanding of things, he cut out, literally, from his Bible. He needed a Bible. He needed a word from God, but it had to be subservient to his understanding of logic and reason. The Enlightenment gave us that, but it didn't stop there. Around the turn of the century, something called uh, modernism begins. 
And modernism was built upon the explosion of scientific understanding in Western culture. We begin to discover new things and understand how the world worked. And something happened. We begin to think that if we couldn't understand something and prove it to be true in a laboratory, then it simply wasn't true. And so here's what modernity did. It said, I can't prove God exists with my Bunsen burner and my beaker set. Because I can't prove it, his word isn't authoritative. So the modern world said, revelation's off the table. So if you want to know what's true, the only thing left on the menu is reason. Scientific inquiry, does this make sense? Can it be proven? And that reigned for a long time. And then in the 1950s and 60s, something new began to come, something called postmodernism, where we began to deconstruct all these scientific approaches to explain everything because we saw that then it just doesn't work. There are things and phenomena in life that we experience that we can't prove in a laboratory because, man, I really love my wife and I'm confident that she loves me, but the problem is you can't draw our blood and, and take a sample and prove that. And so people begin to think, man, this, this idea that everything can be explained through reason and science seems lacking because there's so much that we experience that it can't explain. And so you know what we need to do? We need to, you know what? We take it off the table too. And this is how we got where we are today. Because if you'll notice, we've removed tradition, revelation, and reason. And the only thing left on the stage when determining what is true is me. My experience, my emotions, and my desires have become in our culture, for the most part, the sole arbiter of truth. You don't believe me? Sounds like a funny story. Let me give you a few examples. Recently, we saw in the media a story of a woman named Rachel Dolzell. Rachel Dolzell is a white lady born to European parents. She has light hair and blue eyes. Somewhere in her life, she became enamored with the study of sociology and a particular course of study in sociology called African-American Studies. And she decided that, generally speaking, she was enamored with African-American and black culture. And so Rachel Dozell decided somewhere along the way that in spite of her heritage, she was in fact black. And she promoted that view. She used that to get hired as a teacher of African-American studies at a university. She did quite well. She even became the local president of her NAACP chapter under the proclamation and the assumption that she was, in fact, black. The problem is, she's not. And in the midst of some kind of a legal conflict between her parents, she was outed. A local newscaster caught her and interviewed her heading into her office there at the NAACP. She seemed quite stunned when he asked her, are you African-American? And she said, I don't understand the question. It doesn't seem to be a complicated question. Vanity Fair did a, did a, did a large layout on her in an article aptly named True Lies. And I want you to hear her response to the claim that she deceived people. She said, it's taken my entire life to negotiate how I identify, and I've done a lot of research and a lot of studying, she says. I could have a long conversation, an academic conversation about that. I, I don't know. I just feel like I didn't mislead anybody. I didn't deceive anybody. If people feel misled or deceived, then sorry that they feel that way. But I believe that's more due to their definition and construct of race in their own minds than it is to my integrity or honesty. 
Because I wouldn't say that I'm African-American, but I would say that I'm black. And I think there's a difference. The next line in the article says, if there is a difference, it's lost on everyone else. Now, I want you to understand what happened here. And it's the same thing with the Bruce Jenner story. This lady decided she wanted to be something else. So she told everyone else she was. And in her mind, she wasn't being deceptive. She doesn't think she's lying. It's just obvious that she is. And this is the threat that we face in the assault on truth in the Western world. It is not that people are running around saying you should lie and and really promoting the value of deception. It's rather the belief that we get to define and create our own truth regardless of the facts. It began with something called moral relativism and has morphed into something that Al Mohler called reality relativism. That we just make up our own facts and no one can say we're lying if we feel that way. So I've got a new theory. I've decided after much reflection, that I am trans-economical. I, like, I feel like I have a trust fund. <laughs> and I know my parents, well, they didn't leave me one. But I, I feel that way, and then I think that the bank, like, they should go along with it. And they should find some money and drop it in my account. We laugh at that because we know it's just factually not accurate. And me feeling like I should have a trust fund doesn't change the fact that I don't have a trust fund. But that's kind of what's playing out. And because everyone wants to be polite, no one wants to confront someone else's experience, things just get allowed to slide. But none of that changes the fact that there is such a thing as objective truth. The scriptures saw beforehand the cycle that our culture is going through and address it in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we find not only a description of this cycle, but the motivations behind it. I want you to look at it with me. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I want you to understand that what we're seeing play out in front of us is exactly what Romans 1 has described. And he doesn't call it ignoring the truth. He doesn't call it not knowing the truth. It's called suppressing the truth. Suppression is an active and willful pressing down of. He says what's going on in front of us is that people saw something just obviously observable in the created world. That is, namely, that there's a creator. And that's an uncomfortable finding because if there's a creator, then there's a power deeper and bigger and stronger than me. And that means I might be held accountable to him at one end. I don't want to deal with that. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide the truth and I'm going to hide from the truth. 
and we begin to create our own truth because the one that is real is something we don't want to deal with. And the motivation leading to this, he says, are two things. These are the deeds of unrighteous men in their unrighteousness. Now, the scriptures will proclaim that all of us are unrighteous. This isn't that the church that we're special and righteous in our sin, absent Jesus and his redeeming work for us. Every one of us falls in this category where we have to deal with the truth of God. And because it's uncomfortable and inconvenient, we hide from it and we hide it from our eyes. We're like the ostrich who buries its head in the sand to avoid a threat that's obviously there. It's still there. Nothing's changed, but we don't have to deal with it. This is not uncommon human behavior. We do this in relationships where there's obviously an issue, but no one wants to talk about it. We even made up a phrase that we described the elephant in the room, the thing that's there, that everyone knows is there, that we won't mention, that we don't want to deal with. We'll create myths and explanations in our minds to make us feel better about what we know is going on, but in the end, we're hiding from and suppressing the truth. In John chapter 3, the scriptures will tell us why we do this, that built into this response is a motivation that happens when we come face-to-face with the reality of God. In John chapter 3, verse 19, the Scriptures say, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is how it works, is that God in His perfect righteousness as He sends His Son Jesus into the world begins to do something because we begin to see Jesus clearly and His perfection and righteousness shines brightly on the reality that we're simply not like Him. That we're not perfect and pure. That even when we do good things, we've got mixed motives. And Jesus' righteousness is really uncomfortable to look at because it exposes the reality that we're not. And so we have two choices when confronted with the perfection of Jesus. One is we could turn to Him and look for grace. That is, that's an unnatural thing that the Spirit of God does in us. The other, and this is the normal human response, is we hide from it. And because the light is uncomfortable, we just run back into the darkness because we know how to live there. That's the reality. We reject the truth because it reveals our hidden sinfulness. And in doing so, we twist the truth so that it enables us to remain secure in our sin, to avoid dealing with the reality of our wickedness, and because of that, the reality that we're deserving of God's judgment. That's all too uncomfortable to deal with. So we make up a story that is more plausible, and we say, there is no God. Or if there is, he generally likes me. I love how the comparative analysis before God is always tipped in our favor. We say, I'm better than the average. And and here's how you can make sure you're always better than the average. Be friends with idiots. And then you can look around and go, I'm better than the average. And you can always feel good about you. But the problem is, that's not how things stack up. God doesn't look at us as a righteous judge and say, well, you've committed fewer crimes than the average. We're going to act like it didn't happen. That's not just. In the midst of all of this hiding from the truth, the truth exists, and the truth exists not only in an abstract way that we think about it, like this is just true, but the truth exists in a personal way, namely through Jesus. If you turn to the left, just a few pages in John chapter 1, you'll find that all truth is ultimately rooted in the person of Christ. In John 1, 14, when the gospel comes, right? When, when Jesus comes to earth, this is how the apostle describes it. 
He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Picks up in verse 16 and says, From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So I want you to see this thing that John describes. He says, Jesus came to us. God made flesh full of grace and truth. And ultimately, through Jesus came all truth. That Jesus is the source of all truth. That it comes from Him. That the the preeminent statement of truth over all of creation is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that He reigns over all things for His glory and for our good. And underneath that, every other statement of truth finds its bearing as it fits together. That this central proclamation of truth is at the core. And that everything comes from that. That Jesus is the source of all truth. More than that, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says He's not only the source of truth, but He's the very embodiment of it when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So Jesus isn't just one who speaks truth. He's not just the source of truth. He is the embodiment of it. Jesus is the truth. So that all true statements ultimately find their bearings in Him and they come from Him. And that if rightly understood, all true statements honor Jesus. So discoveries in a laboratory about how atoms split and molecules work, and when they start getting this Hadrian colonists going and they're smacking molecules together almost at light speed. And things are breaking up and we don't understand it. And they find new stuff in astrophysics and they call stuff quarks. We don't even know what that is. It's amazing. The problem is that in our, in our sinful minds, we take these discoveries of complexity of creation and we tell ourselves we've explained everything and we don't need God. And the appropriate response to all of this amazing complexity is rather than to say, I don't need Him, to marvel and wonder at the wisdom of God made manifest as He's unveiled it to us in His common grace. Science hasn't done anything to change our need from God, but in God's grace to us, they discovered a lot of things that show us God's handiwork. So we shouldn't fear scientific discoveries. We shouldn't run from that. We should embrace all statements of truth because in the end, they put God's glory and wisdom and power on display and we should celebrate it. I'd like us to get somewhat practical towards this end. Since we belong to Jesus and we're united to Him and Jesus is the embodiment of truth as the people of Jesus... We are to be a people of truth. If we belong to Jesus, the truth should characterize us. And there's three significant things I think we need to know what it is to be a people of truth. And the first is simply to love the truth. That is, the people who belong to Jesus, we delight in truth. In the words of the prophet Zechariah, as he spoke to the people in Zechariah chapter 8, He communicates something of God's heart regarding truth. And I want you to go through this with me. The people of God had been far from Him and they had experienced God's hand of discipline and God was promising to draw them back. He says, These things that you shall do 
Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So God has said, look, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to restore your fortune so much that these solemn fasts that you were going to celebrate, I want them to be celebrations and feasts. And what I want you to do now that I'm returning your fortunes to you is to hate false oaths and lies and love truth. Not just speak truth, but, but love it. Now, this can be awkward because sometimes, well, sometimes the truth is ugly. But the truth is always good. And I want you to think through this. Recently, in the last couple of weeks, there's been this whole Ashley Madison website scandal. Now, this is a website that was a matchmaking service for married people to find other married people. And some people hacked into their databases and accessed it. And they went to the owners of the website. They said, we're going to give you a choice. You can shut down the website or we're going to publish the names of your clients. Well, they like money just as much as the other guys, so they didn't shut down the website. And so now names are coming out of people who are customers or clients of this service. And a lot of people are having very awkward conversations right now. And as ugly and sordid as that is, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that the truth is being communicated. Because every time one of these rendezvous was said, that spouse was put at risk. And it's good that he or she knows. It's good that that thing that was at work, this cancer destroying their family has been exposed because now that it's on the table, there's the opportunity to address it. There's the opportunity for forgiveness or restoration. There's the opportunity uh, for protection for those that were harmed from these things. Even really ugly, uncomfortable truth in the end, when revealed, is good. Because once the thing is laid on the table, sin looks like what it is. And once it's laid on the table, then we can begin to address it. We can't do anything for anything that is kept in secret. Believers should not suppress the truth or fear the truth in any way. We're to be heralds of truth. A few years ago, there was a best-selling book and then a movie called Da Vinci Code. Uh, Da Vinci Code, the history, the claims they make are so laughable, it barely even required a defense or an explanation. The thing that actually concerned me about the book is that the way it presented the church is that it presented the church not as the speaker of truth, but rather the concealer of the truth. And that concerned me much more than any false claims of history of the life of Jesus they made. Because the church has a prophetic voice to speak on behalf of God as his ambassadors to the world. And because of that, there should never be a reliable, even implication that the church in any way is afraid of any truth. Now, we should question claims of truth, but if something is true, it's to be loved because we are a people of truth. We have nothing to fear from the truth. The second reality is we are to live the truth. Because we love the truth, we're to live in a way that's according with it. Our lives should line up with what we proclaim to be true. There should be no secret lives 
for Christians, where we're different in private than we are in public. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul describes his approach to ministry based upon this. He says, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The old version that that I remember that says, we have rejected hidden things. That we don't live shrouded in mystery, one person at home and another person at work and a different person with our friends. That we have an integrated life where we live truthfully where we are who we represent ourselves to be. We all know the word when that's missing. We call it hypocrisy. Hypocrisy finds its power in one concept, the word shame. When we have done something or we desire to do something that is shameful, that we're unwilling to admit to another person, unwilling to confess, we tend to run towards that and live double lives. And we do that because we're unwilling to be weak before another. But the proclamation of the gospel begins that there is no one who's righteous, that we're all dreadfully busted sinners. And so there's no place for shame. We should be able and willing to freely confess who we are and where we struggle so that we can be lifted up in prayer and encouraged and strengthened and discipled. When we reject hidden things and we drag our struggles into the light, we begin, by God's grace, to have power on them. To be able to live in victory because we're no longer holding it secretly. That when our sin is pulled into the light, it's seen as ugly and undesirable as it is. So we reject living in secret and hypocrisy. We live the truth. And lastly, we speak the truth. As a people of truth, we love the truth, we live it, and we speak it. It's not good enough to just live it and allow the world to go on its way towards destruction. We must proclaim what we know to be true from the Word of God. Now, it's important we do this in the right way because we have tendencies to two extremes. We saw in John chapter 1 that Jesus came, and I love the two things that are used to describe Jesus, that He was full of grace and truth. And most of us wrestle to do both of those things. Some of you are going to be inclined towards grace. And because of that, there are times that you should speak that you won't. Some of us will be inclined towards truth, which means there will be times that we need to speak, but we do it in the wrong way. And Jesus is this amazing embodiment fully of grace and truth. Truth spoken in love at all times. We're to speak the truth, but always in love for the building up and edification of others. Not with the goal that we would be vindicated or that we would win the argument or that we demonstrate ourselves to be superior orators or or better logicians or smarter people. We engage in a conversation of the truth about the things that matter for one purpose only, that that person would know the joy that's only found in Jesus. And if our goal is them finding joy in Jesus and they lash out at us, we don't fight back. We don't play by the rules of the world because we have a different master who demands different things of us. And when our master was nailed to a cross for sins he didn't commit, and when people shouted insults at him as he died for their sin and in their place, he didn't fight back. He didn't lash out as men do. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they 
are doing. And so when we speak the truth, we do it as ambassadors of Jesus, not only delivering a message, but delivering it in a way that's consistent with who he is, full of grace and truth. So as Christians, as Christians, we don't get to throw hand grenades in the room and leave to not see the carnage. We don't get to drop the mic and walk away. Always, in every case, when we proclaim the truth, it's to be seasoned in love. Even if people call us names. Even if they hate us for it. I believe that this issue of truth is the fundamental issue facing the church as it moves forward. To learn how to be full of both grace and truth. To embody the truth that we saw in Jesus. And the amazing thing for us is that we don't do it alone. God has said, I will send my spirit and you will receive power when he comes to be my witnesses. So we have the power of the spirit of God and we have the example of Jesus on the cross to look to, to proclaim the truth that finds its origin in this simple reality that Jesus is the only Son of God who died for our sins and rose again and that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and all things exist for His glory. And if you came today confused about even these most basic things and uncertain, I want you to know that today that same offer of salvation and forgiveness is available to you if you will trust him, if you will believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do, you become a child of God and you become connected to the only one who is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is good and that you are true and right and just. We thank you, God, that in the midst of a world that changes like shifting shadows, that you are constant and certain, and that you have sent your Son, Jesus, to us. Lord, as the embodiment of truth, and not only truth, but that he was full of grace towards us, and that he died for us and rose again. Lord, I pray that you would draw us near to you through him today. And that you would inspire and empower us by your spirit to be a people who love the truth, who live it, and who speak it in all grace and love. And that you would begin using us and moving by your spirit to turn back the tide in our culture. Lord, we don't ask for you to change things in D.C., but we know that that's not where things begin. We're, we're asking you to change us and to use us in a transformative way in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.